0: Simple Beep, episode 31, The System Folder. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormony.
1: And I'm Brian Satorius.
0: And on this episode, we're going to talk about something that is really at the core of the classic Mac experience, which is the system folder, the thing that made it run in the first place. But as is usual for our shows, we have a little bit of follow-up and... Uh, We have follow-up on something that is at the core of listening to this podcast for many of our listeners, which is a strange issue that we were experiencing recently with our podcast files and Overcast. And we know that many of our listeners use Overcast as their podcast client of choice. Uh, About half of our listeners actually are listening on Overcast, and I know that that's my preferred podcast app. And, you know, we, we do everything that we can to test the files, test the feed, make sure that everything looks right and is working properly as it goes out to you. But one of the things that we don't do is listen through to the entire episode after it's already posted on our site. Just make sure that it starts playback. But in some previous episodes, uh, about five episodes ago, this started that there was a bug where if you started playback of an episode and then came back to it later, it would start from the beginning again, which is absolutely not how podcasts are supposed to work. you are supposed to be able to pick up where you left off. And we did some troubleshooting on this. And fortunately and unfortunately, we figured out the source of it was actually the MP3 files themselves. And what was happening was this might've been a bug in iTunes where we were using iTunes to finalize the metadata and cover art for our files before we posted them up to uh, Squarespace, where we host our site, and then it goes out on the RSS feed to all of you. And whatever was happening in that final stage uh, of saving the file, something was wrong in the way that it was being saved, and Overcast was not parsing it properly. And that was leading to the issue. We figured out that... If we basically just don't let iTunes touch that file, if we save all of the metadata elsewhere um, and don't include custom artwork in the file, everything seems to be working okay and should be fine from last episode, from episode 30 on. We're not going to go back and replace files earlier in the podcast feed just because I know when when you go back and start making changes that are that big, uh, things can go strange in people's feeds, and we don't want to make it so that there are even more problems. Um, so we are over the hump on this one, and we think that it should be smooth listening experience from now into the future.
1: And now for a little bit of follow in, not not follow out to other podcasts, but following up on something that's been happening in our tech circles and was actually sent in to us by a listener It is the recently posted video from the Layers Conference last summer alongside WWDC, where Susan Kerr gave a quick presentation and then afterward was interviewed by John Gruber. And this is a great video to watch. Her presentation is about a half hour, and then there's another half hour of Q&A at the end. If you are interested in some of the early work she did on the Macintosh, like some of the the original system font, Chicago, or some of the original icons. She includes a little bit about her process there and a fun peek at some icon drawings she made on graph paper as preparation for her actual interview at Apple for the job.
0: Yeah, one of the things I learned in this talk was that some of her original work was recently acquired by MoMA and is literally considered art and featured in an art museum, which is really cool. I think for people who are aficionados of the early Mac, like we are, that much of this you will have seen before. And a lot of it you can even see on Susan Kerr's website today, where she maintains a portfolio that goes back to her work starting in 1983 with Apple. But the talk is really interesting because there are a couple of pieces in there that I know I had never seen before.
1: And in a related bit of follow in uh, this article was posted at the end of last calendar year, but I just saw it and it was nicely timed with Susan Kerr talking about her designing of Chicago in the original Mac. There is an article from one of the designers at medium uh, around the time that they redesigned, rebranded and relaunched at the end of last year about how they were trying to incorporate system fonts into their CSS file uh with the El Capitan arriving on Macs, San Francisco is now the system font, but you can't just specify San Francisco in your CSS. You have to do some clever workarounds. Now there's starting to be a dash Apple dash system thing you can insert there. Uh and they they tried to include everything. They tried to include uh Roboto for Android, Sego. <laughs> Segui? I don't know. I think it's Segoe. Segoe on Windows. And then as they were locking in Apple, they thought maybe this system uh, string is going to be universal. So they put system first. (laughs) And the way CSS font uh, declarations work is if it uh, picks the first one and matches it with the fonts on your system, it'll just use that one and stop reading through the line. And it turns out that some Windows machines still have the original font from the original like Windows 3 and earlier, which is just called System. So for some Windows users, when Medium relaunched, it didn't look new. It in fact looked uh, mid-80s, early-90s old. And uh, so there's a fun shout-out in there to other old system fonts like Chicago, which is what ties us all into it. But we'll put both of these links in the show notes for a fun... Trip down memory lane.
0: One thing that they didn't put in this post that I think would be amazing is if someone could get a. Well, I guess I don't know if you could manage it. If I don't know if the eras overlapped, in which you could have a web browser that supported CSS font declarations that also had a copy of the original San Francisco font running, <laughs> because then it would come up really early in their list. Because they're they're trying to favor for the modern devices that have San Francisco like iOS 9 and the Apple Watch. And then you would get the uh the formerly known as ransom font from from the original Mac, and all of your Medium posts would look uh look like they were cut and pasted together out of out of bitmap shapes.
1: And I think that San Francisco, the original San Francisco font was also done by Susan Kerr.
0: Yes, it was. And she talked about it in in that interview. A, a, a lot of the uh interview with Gruber. Uh, was focusing on the font work. I think because it's a little bit less known about the process of that. You know, the icon icon design is pretty simple and straightforward, and we all understand. You know, we, we've all gone into res edit ourselves and, and played around with the Fat bits editor and know basically the kind of tools that she was working with, even though they were more primitive at the beginning and then became more advanced. Um, but he talks a lot about the font design and how... Font design and icon design are two separate things now, but we're all just part of one package then it is a good interview, and I think it's the uh the only time that I've ever seen Gruber doing something that I could describe as fangirling because even when he did even when he did the interview with uh Phil Schiller at w w d c there it was just like he had just staged such an event and surprised a huge room full of people. And that was the vibe in the room. But in this interview, it's in it seems like a smaller setting and it's just like, he is in such awe of being able to sit down with someone who had such an impact on the early Mac and the Mac, as he points out for 30 years plus. So yeah, we'll link to both of those in the show notes for this episode. And now on to our topic for today, which also goes back some 30-plus years, uh, although it no longer exists, uh, unlike some of the things that were in in those interviews, it's the system folder. So let's go back to the system folder's simple beginnings in System 1, which we admit is something that we have essentially no primary experience with. But we can look at accounts of how System 1 worked and see how it fed through to System 7, where we picked up our Mac experiences. But to be honest, the software that ran a Macintosh in the very beginning was very simple, and by necessity had to be very simple. It had to fit in a very small amount of disk space. So believe it or not, the original System 1 in the system folder, which contained all of the software that ran the computer, that was the part of the boot disk. It contained six files, and they were under 200k. And we think, oh my gosh, under 200k, that's nothing. But it had to be that small, because remember that the original Macintosh shipped with floppy drive only. And they were the double density, but not high density floppy drives, if I recall. So the entire disk space that you had to work with on your computer was 800k. At any given time. So, if you got the system files into a quarter of that, then you had three quarters of the remaining space for applications and documents. And that was exactly how the system was designed. And these were some of the limitations that uh, people like Susan Kerr and the engineers at Apple were dealing with. Uh, everything was monochrome. Everything had to be as small and compressed and compact as possible. and the files that were in there were very simple. It was the clipboard file, the finder, which we're still familiar with, an image writer driver because that was the only printer that was possible to use with the original Mac, the notepad file, the scrapbook file, and the system suitcase, which is an interesting uh way of storing system information that we'll get into a little bit later.
1: Talking more about the system folder, uh, one thing that always jumped out to me is that the word folder was spelled out. And this may be a little thing, but there was a convention back in the classic Mac OS where file names were limited to 31 characters. And if you, for example, downloaded a game from Ambrosia which had uh, separate files for sprites and the share registration information and the manual. They would all come together in a folder that would carry the name of the application, but it was a folder, so you wouldn't just want to say escape velocity. People would put a little uh, stylized F, like uh, when people are writing out functions at the end of their folder names to denote that it was a folder about that application, escape velocity F. Uh, the option F character.
0: And the escape velocity one is a really good example. I just opened this up now because I remember seeing this earlier where inside the escape velocity folder, there were lots of other folders that went along with the application. And um, there's one that's documentation F and uh, there's another one (laughs) that is a really funny to me way of naming a folder. It says, website that's capital w space capital s website earls all lowercase urls and then f yeah (laughs) website earls folder
1: yeah so uh naming it system folder well the word spelled out in capital f gave it this kind of grand tone well it's it's a special
0: folder right and in the same sense that when you create a new folder with Command-N in the classic Mac and Command-Shift-N in OS ten, you get a folder that's called New Folder. It's not called Untitled or something like that. Um, so there are you know, specific reserved folder names, and even with those limitations of file names, they knew that the system folder was something that you needed to have, and ideally, although not always, should have just one of. So it was fairly safe to reserve that name for it.
1: And you, Ed, you mentioned having more than one. Uh, there were some cases.
0: Yeah, there are some cases where you would have more than one system folder. And although they could get messy, uh, especially once you started to have more disk space, this was possible, or multiple disks um, with later Macs that would have either multiple f- floppy drives or they would have a hard drive and a floppy drive. One of the things that was really, it's not remarkable about the system folder at the time that it was current, but seems strange now, is the fact that you could just take the entire system software of a computer and move it from disk to disk. Just like everything you need is in this folder. There's nothing special about how this folder really has been linked up to other components of the system. If you want to boot a Macintosh, all you need is a system folder on a disk that is accessible by that Macintosh. Except there was one more thing that you had to do. You had to make sure that your system folder was blessed. And this was actually the official term for it. And uh, so the default was that if there was on any given disk, you're generally supposed to have just one system folder, and that folder would always be blessed. But if you made multiple system folders by accident, or if you were making some modifications that you wanted to have a second copy because you thought things might go really haywire, and because there were very few protections against actually just totally screwing up your system folder, these were, it was in many respects, A folder like any other. The only thing that was different about it was that if it was blessed, it had a little miniature 16 by 16 Macintosh icon inside the folder icon. And this indicated to you, the user, that the system recognized that folder as a valid system folder that it could start up from if you selected that disk as the startup disk or forced that disk to be the startup disk through the various keyboard combinations that you could press at startup time. And the thing is that there was no real procedure for blessing a system folder other than to drag a valid copy of the finder and a valid system suitcase into it. And, uh, there would be issues where maybe if you were working with multiple versions of the system software, or if you were copying, uh, copying the system folder to a different disk that you wanted to boot from, because that wasn't even, like, that, you know, today, copying system software from one disk to another, like, the first thing you start thinking of is, like, oh my gosh, it's like piracy, right? Whereas if all your Macintosh has is a single floppy disk, well, yeah, and then you've got the 600k left over to work with, okay, well, you fill up that 600k, now what? Well, the answer is simple. You get another floppy disk. You put another system folder on it. You move a copy of the system folder to the new disk, and now you have 600 more K to play with, right? So this was a common practice at the time, but it was sort of fiddly in the fact that you just had to drag and drop and make sure that the system kind of recognized that uh, the system folder was blessed. There were some third-party apps that apparently allowed for explicit Blessing and unblessing and re-blessing were your actual terms that show up in in uh, you know some of the manuals of this time uh, for those tasks, and you could go in and do that. Um, one one uh, in the Sadmax Bombs and Others Disasters book that I have, <laughs> it talks about what if you get into a quandary where you're using one of those utilities and you wind up with no blessed system
1: folders. Uh-oh. Yeah, you might be in trouble then. And in addition to blessing which, you know, denotes that this is the system file or system folder to boot from, Apple started to realize like maybe we should not let people mess around with it too much uh save them from hurting themselves. And so around system 7.5 there was a new option in the general controls control panel to protect the system folder which was basically like locking it. Which you could do with any file or folder. I guess for people who didn't understand what locking was, this was a a nice way to to keep them from copying things out or de-blessing a folder or in any other way messing it up. As we'll get to
0: in the rest of this episode, there were many things in the system folder that you would use as a matter of course. And the fact was that that you would see the desktop of your computer, you would open up the root-level disk that you were using, whether it was floppy disk or hard disk, and there would be maybe just a handful of things there, maybe only two or three things in there, and one of them is the system folder, and maybe half of the things that you would want to use on a regular basis would actually be in there. So it wasn't like it was an off-limits place where all the rest of your work was happening outside of the system folder, and you would only be going into it for maintenance type tasks or installing something new it was that there were things in there that were useful just for the life of the computer so it there was every chance that you might move or change or alter something in there just as part of your regular work and uh there were i think even to the beginning i don't know to system 1 but certainly to early system 7 there were protections against things like if you took the finder and dragged it to the trash, you would get a dialog box that says that you shouldn't do that. <laughs> like, that's a terrible idea. Uh, your computer will not boot if you do this. Um, so it would protect you in those ways. But there was nothing that prevented you from, say, modifying the finder, <laughs> right? So like as long as you didn't move it out of place, there was no warning that you were doing something potentially dangerous, um, whereas this system protection system folder protection would basically be on the lookout for that on your behalf,
1: yeah, and just to reiterate a piece of that, I think that 's the crux of of why we chose this topic for this episode and what made the system folder such a novel thing is that it was user accessible, just like the the Mac in general. Uh, it provided a graphic user interface, and things had human-readable names and icons. Uh, and the the like. very basic foundation of what was making your computer run still had the same accessible human touch. And you can compare and contrast to early DOS and Windows, where it was like C slash Windows 32 slash lots of eight-character names with a three-character extension that don't really betray what what they do or or if they're important or not. Uh, And yeah, to say nothing of the fact that you can go into the system folder and navigate it like any other folder on your hard disk to get to things that change your system rather than having one grand control panel with toggles that do things behind the scenes. No, you can actually like touch the files themselves and move them around.
0: And the basic functionalities of any of those files that were in the system folder is that either you would double click it and it would actually do something useful, or you would get a message that says,
1: basically, this is part of the system software. You need this. Trust us. Anyway, this protect the system folder option in the general controls was suspiciously like still in general controls with Mac OS nine, but permanently grayed out. You couldn't turn it on because as Apple said themselves in a knowledge base article They would rather you use their multiple users feature in OS 9 to set permissions about who can even go in and touch the system folder rather than lock it in general across the board. Kind of with the implication
0: that at least one person on every Mac needs to still be able to
1: get in there. Oh, that makes sense. Because I was about to say like, it's a weird design choice to show, to like actually literally display an option that can never be chosen right but the the notion
0: there is that you basically need someone with that e- even in in macOS 9 they were moving more towards the unix based user system and permission system they, they were basically saying somebody on this Mac needs to be able to go in and make arbitrary changes to the system folder. Otherwise, they're going to be sad because (laughs) there are going to be tasks that need to be done for the maintenance of this computer that won't be able to be done. So now let's uh, delve into the files themselves. So we listed that very short list of what was in there in the original system software and Now we'll go to a little bit broader. Um, Fast forward to at least System 6, System 7. Uh, We've got some System 7.5 and beyond the the Mac OS features as opposed to uh, the classic system software features Uh, we'll get to a little bit later. But now let's go through just, you know, what is the anatomy of the system folder? Because I think in macOS 10 people who are power users and really want to use OS X to its full potential have an idea of what the anatomy of their system is, although it's a little bit different in the sense that a lot of what happens is in the user folder. And we know where to go in the user folder to make certain types of changes or customizations, but there's a slash system slash, (laughs) you know, that path leads to a folder where basically nothing changes, and even if you do change something in there, it's probably going to get overwritten the next time you update your operating system. So there's that segregation. But here we're going to dive into the classic system folder where everything was together in a big, happy operating system party. (laughs) Uh, And we should probably start with uh, the one file in there that is running all the time visibly to the user, which is the Finder. And you know, we I, I think that people have loved and hated the Finder for the entire now 32 year history of the Macintosh uh, as as we're recording this. Just celebrated a birthday recently. The Finder is a utilitarian application. It is what gives the desktop, the basic windowing metaphors, and file and folder manipulation. And as you can kind of imagine, that's a really critical task, and you would think that that would be something that would take up maybe a lot of that space taken by the system. But the Finder was, even from the very beginning, an extremely small app. So in System 1, the finder of those 200-some K was 46K. I guess it was the second largest file in there. Um, but just to think that a a full-fledged, always-running application that manages files and folders could be that small is kind of, kind of impressive. Although we'll link to uh, a really good overview of System 1 uh, which is still up on the web, which is a great resource because it's hard to go all the way back uh, to that. You know, There are lots of books and publications that we have from uh, the System 6, System 7 era, but going all the way back to System 1 uh, is a little bit rarer. And uh, one of the things that's interesting in there is that apparently in System 1.0 or System 1.1, Uh, The open and save dialog boxes were extremely simple. So this, again, was controlled by the system software. And uh, apparently you couldn't use the arrow keys when naming a file. Uh, If you've ever used a terminal in OS X and gotten into a terminal process that doesn't understand uh, the arrow keys... And expects you to use uh, some other way of manipulating the cursor. And you start getting bracket bracket C and bracket bracket D. It was a lot like that. Um, and apparently in system, system one, you know, this is one of the reasons that we do the show is to compare the modern to the old. Apparently, there was only one level of folder hierarchy. You couldn't put a folder inside another folder. And in 2016, you say that and you immediately go, hello, iOS. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because that's what we have on, on iOS. You can put an arbitrary number of things in a folder, but you can't put a folder inside another folder. And this is exactly how system one behaved in the finder and in open save dialog boxes. It makes sense then that if those were the kind of limitations that were in the file system and were being... Uh, represented to the user, that this could be a very simple, small app. I think the interesting thing, though, is that uh, the Finder remains a pretty simple app today. It obviously has far more features than it did in 1984. It has far more features in OS X today than it did in OS X five years ago, even, Um, I don't have to go into the details but you know you can name off tons of tons of features tabs and all kinds of other things
1: not to mention like retina assets for for everything
0: right but even today i would say that the finder application is very small relative to our expectations for today so if you go and find uh the finder application in uh system library core services and get info on it it is 32.2 megabytes in the current version of El Capitan, which go look in your applications folder at anything else that you're running. You know, like look, look at any of the applications that we're running right now. You know, um, our web browsers or Skype or you know anything that you have on a day-to-day basis on your computer. And probably I would say the average size of an app is something like 50 to 60 megabytes. And of course, if you're dealing with bigger apps like Office apps or, um, you know, Adobe apps, they're going to be much, much larger. GarageBand, these kinds of things. Um, But even still, the Finder is a very slim app to this day.
1: The other big file in the system folder was the system suitcase. And there are a couple pages online that kind of talk about the specific system suitcase or what a suitcase was in the early Macintosh system software. And I can't come up with like the right metaphor for it. Like a suitcase can hold lots of folders in real life, right? (laughs) Um, But these suitcases were within a folder. It gets a little muddled for me.
0: Yeah. And I would love to know what the definitive story is of why they decided to call them suitcases. As far as I know, that's not out there, but if anyone has a link to that, we would be really curious to know.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: The thing about suitcases in general, they were used for very specific purposes, um, but they were kind of a hybrid because they were, they were hybrid between a file and a folder in some ways. And the best OS X equivalent of that, I think is a bundle.
1: Right. Like an app almost
0: like an app, but also like some certain file types. So, um, what was it? I, I guess not anymore, but for in the early versions of iWork, the documents that you created oh, sure. yeah. were bundles and you could say, or, or packages and you could say show package contents and you could, you could drill down and see what the resources in there were. So suitcases kind of behaved in that same way. Although even more transparently, you could double click on a suitcase, and you would get a finder window that looked like a folder. But what showed in that finder window was limited. There was actually more going on behind the scenes. So for example, if you opened the system suitcase, you would see a limited number of things in there. You would see um, keyboard layouts and the system alert sounds. But that was not all that was contained in the system suitcase.
1: Yeah. Up until, uh, system six, the fonts installed on your system were in there and the desk accessories themselves were in there, uh, in the suitcase. You'll recall that when we listed the files in the system folder in system one, notepad file and scrapbook file were in there, but where was notepad and scrapbook? They were inside the suitcase and up until System Seven, you actually couldn't open the suitcase like a folder. And if you wanted to modify those kinds of resources within the suitcase, you had to use a utility called Font DA Mover, which I think we talked about in our uh, Desk Accessory Widget episode. So there were fonts, there were the desk accessories, keyboard layouts, and system sounds. With System Seven Point One, the fonts were moved out into their own Fonts folder within the system folder and the font files themselves were usually suitcases because they included all the different sizes and weights and and styles uh, so just suitcases abound and of course the desk accessories moved into Apple menu items once that was broken out of the system suitcase as well
0: yeah so those were the two applications of suitcases and like I said they were very limited and they basically only lived in the system folder but they could be used anywhere and you could put arbitrary things in a suitcase later on it it was a bad idea and basically meant that you know you couldn't really do much with it i kind of think of it as like uh like disk images now where usually you have a disk image for a very specific purpose like distributing a file across the internet but you can just create disk images anywhere that you want and put anything into them and mount them at any time but it's basically just And it's an overarching file structure that kind of just gets in the way of what you're trying to do.
1: And like Ed said, there were these discrete files that you could, as of System 7, kind of open up and manipulate as if they were within a regular folder. But there were resources and data specific to the system kind of hard encoded to the file itself. And we're not going to get into it in this episode. But if you opened up the system file in ResEdit, you could really poke around and and change a lot of stuff in your system.
0: This was really where a whole lot of the interaction with the system software came from. Um, Things like the basic outline of system dialog boxes and the messages that would appear in those. Those kind of things were encoded in the system file. And lots and lots of other stuff that was um, basically system-level code Uh, that was either binary code or uh, hex representations of um, assembly code were in the system suitcase in, again, sort of the most efficient way possible.
1: Moving on to some other files in the system folder, one I want to call out is the clipboard. It's been in there since system one, and it's there somewhere. And I think it's in core services today in OS 10. And something that also, I think, I, I don't know for sure if it exists in System 1, but exists in System 7 and still today, is if you're in the Finder and you go to the Edit menu, you can select Show Clipboard. It's a menu item. It'll show the text or photo or whatever you've most recently copied. But the, if you double-click the file itself, the Clipboard file, it'll do that same thing. It'll show you what is in your Clipboard. And of course, there are utilities that will let you save and recall multiple things from your clipboard and do a lot more fancy things with the clipboard. But the good old-fashioned single-item clipboard is still sitting there as a discrete file that you can open like a file to see what's inside.
0: Yeah, and this is one of those cases where something in the system folder, you could take it and use it as a little discrete piece of functionality. So if you said, I am frequently checking what's on my clipboard. Well, you could always switch back to the Finder and go to Edit, Show Clipboard. But maybe you thought, that's not particularly efficient. Um, so if you wanted to, you could take the clipboard from the, the clipboard file from the system folder and make an alias of it anywhere that you want. You could put an alias of it on your desktop, and then all you had to do was double-click an icon on your desktop, and you could see uh, the contents of the clipboard. And so it gave lots of flexibility by having direct access to these files that
1: didn't necessarily behave as files within the system folder. There's another fun file in there that came a little after system seven because it was needed for internet connectivity. It was a file called Mac TCP DNR. And uh, some sources online paint this as a control panel type file. And it was basically required if your Mac wanted to communicate via TCP before Apple introduced the open transport suite of networking extensions and other files. Uh, And and I remember this one specifically because once my family got a second computer, I got to have the, the old family computer in my room where, which is where I was tinkering with the system folder and system suitcase. And uh, whatever system was installed in it was of the vintage where Macs were starting to come online. And so this Mac TCP DNR file is in there. And again, I don't want all these extraneous files that I don't need. There's no internet connectivity on the old Mac 2. So I would keep trashing it. But this was a file that would just re- recreate itself, uh, I guess, on boot. Or if you ever went into a control panel or something that, that kind of awoke the TCP protocol on the Mac, it would be like, oh, I need the Mac TCP DNR in the system folder.
0: This was kind of the first file of that type that I think now we're very used to in OS X. Um, where you say, oh, if 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 I just delete this version, a new version will be automatically created. And you mentioned that this file was just hanging out in the main level of the system folder. And that was what made it noticeable and relatively uncommon. Because as the system folder grew in complexity from system 1 through OS 9 as as various types of files that were necessary to the system performance or were add-ons to it as they were incorporated into the functionality of the classic Mac OS they were ten- they tended to be organized into folders to keep them tidy and to have a defined place that the system would look for certain types of files that would then have an impact on how the system ran.
1: Let's start with Apple menu items. Uh, We mentioned, of course, before that System 1 did have the desk accessories, including Notepad and Scrapbook. And once the desk accessories were freed from the system suitcase, they went into the Apple menu. And so that's where you would find some of these things we already mentioned, the Notepad, the Scrapbook, keycaps, calculator, the printer chooser, and so on.
0: And Apple Menu Items was one of the places that I know I spent a lot of time customizing in classic macOS because the Apple Menu was your system-wide access, quick access to various types of information. And with the Apple Menu Items folder, it meant that you had access to arbitrary information. So you could actually... Have a file application folder live in the Apple menu items folder, or you could simply place an alias there and it would behave in just the same way. If, for example, you had files that you wanted quick access to that made sense to live somewhere else on your disk, so you could put literally anything there. So, say you were working on a project and you were constantly going to a folder that contained all the files for that project, just throw an alias in Apple menu items, and it's always just, you know, a couple, just a click and drag away at the top left corner of your screen. And the lack of customization for the Apple menu in OS 10 when the developer previews and public betas came out uh, at the beginning of the OS 9, OS 10 transition, this generated a huge outcry from people who were everyday Mac users because they said, what do you mean I can't customize the Apple menu that there's only a couple things in there just about this Mac and shut down? What good is that? (laughs) Um, Everything that I access on a regular basis lives in my Apple menu. That That is my access to all of my stuff. And the Apple menu became even more powerful in System 7.5 when they added hierarchical submenu support. Um, and this was beneficial for both core OS features and also for those customizable features that you had. So um, one of the default options in the Apple menu, if you had a fresh install of classic Mac OS, was the control panels folder. And so in System 7.0, 7.1, it would just be the folder. So you'd say, okay, well, I I need to make a change in one of my control panel settings. So I'll go Apple menu control panels, double click on the one that I want. But then in System 7.5, you could have a submenu. So you just say Apple menu control panels, pick the one that I want directly and go from there. But you still have that customizable feature. So if you add, say, a project folder, you could put it in the Apple menu and you could go directly to your projects. And then everyone's, of course, number one uber hack for this feature in System 7.5 was, wait, you have hierarchical access to any folder that you put in there. Hey, you should definitely take an alias of your root level hard disk. And put it in the Apple menu items folder, because then you could drill down an arbitrary number of levels. I, I I don't know if it ever ran out. It might've run out after like eight menus. Um, but it was, it was pretty silly <laughs> that you could, you could just start from your root level hard disk in the Apple menu with whatever name you give it, you know, it didn't have to match the name that was on your desktop because it was an alias. Um, So you could put, maybe you wanted it to be first. So you put space, you know, space Macintosh HD is the name of the alias. And it's the first thing in your Apple menu. And you just go into it and you can drill down menus. And, you know, we were working on much smaller screens then. And you would get about three menus in to the right and it would start going back to the left. Yeah. And sometimes it would start going back to the right. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of power that lived in the Apple menu itself and was all tied to this folder. Um, I mentioned that... You know, some people thought that the Apple menu was basically neutered in OS X. It was stripped of all of this customizability, all of this power, because, of course, a lot of this was shifting to the dock. Today, if you want, you can drag your hard disk to the dock, to the, um, you know, there's the application section, and then there's the files and folder section. You can drag your hard disk there, you can set it up to appear as a menu, and you can just go down the hierarchy exactly the same way, but it was no longer part of the Apple menu. The Apple menu's focus was changing to be this hub of basic system commands that we have today. And there was a little bit of a hint towards that in 7.5 and later versions of macOS before the transition to OS X, where... By default, they included a desk accessory that was called Shutdown and did that, except it wasn't quite called Shutdown. It was called Bullet Shutdown.
1: So it would be at the end.
0: Right, because if a lot of things in the classic Mac OS, it was not considered strange to hack the order of things by putting weird punctuation in front of it. And so the bullet character, option eight, was one that would put things towards the end. So this default uh, option in the Apple menu was this DA called bullet shutdown. So it would naturally come to the end and the bullet displayed. It wasn't like that bullet was then hidden when it showed up in the Apple menu. It says bullet shutdown. And so that was sort of the transitional period to saying this is, you know, one of the things that you should be able to do from the Apple menu is shut down your computer. And it remains that way to this day.
1: Ed also mentioned, especially after System 7.5, that the Control Panels folder, which had a place in the Apple Menu Items folder, uh, became more powerful. You might not ever have to actually open the folder itself. All the Control Panels were accessible from the Apple Menu. That doesn't mean that we have forgotten it in our list of folders within the System folder. And this was one of the
0: folders that came along later because in the original macOS in in System 1, there was a single control panel. And I think probably many of our listeners are familiar with the iconic design of that original control panel, another piece of work by Susan Kerr. And it's interesting because it contains probably close to 10 different settings in the control panel window that are all kind of tiled together to fit into one small rectangular window and it has absolutely no words. Yeah. There are lots of icons and uh, y- you have to have numbers um, because some of the things that are being set in there are things like the date and time. And well, you <laughs> there's no way that you're going to be able to represent the date and time without some numbers. So numbers were allowed in all other parts of the control panel, things like setting um, the key repeat rate uh, and uh, how many times menus blink and what the volume is. The desktop pattern. And yes, the desktop pattern, which you got uh, you got a whopping eight by eight <laughs> fat bits, uh, all black or white, but you could you could change that as you saw fit. So there was that single control panel to start. Then in systems four and five, which uh, went through pretty quickly on the road to system six, Um, the control panel expanded a little bit. Um, so the window got a little bit bigger and there was some explanatory text, but then in, um, once we got to system seven, we had multiple control panels. There was no way that we were going to be able to keep all of the system settings in a single window. And so there's a control panels folder. You would have individual control panel files that had the, uh, the type code CDEV and uh, CDEV, and you would put them in your control panels folder and they would load at startup and perform various tasks. Um, There are a couple of specific ones that I just wanted to point out uh, because of the way that they behaved. One that many of these, if you go through these, have features that you would expect to see and do see in system preferences in OS X. Um, Things like displays or general preferences or sound or text. Yeah, all of these different things. Um, But there are a couple that were kind of necessary in the classic macOS that are no longer relevant. One of them in particular is the memory control panel, which uh, I remember going into a, a fair number of times... Uh, and what you could set in the memory control panel was you could set some caching features, uh, you know, disk cache for, for, for RAM, which of course would be painfully slow. Um, virtual memory as well, um, which was, you know, highly suggested not to turn on unless you absolutely needed it. But one of the most interesting features in there was the RAM disk. And uh, we mentioned hacking the, the system uh, before and the fact that you could have multiple system folders, but it got really odd and fiddly if you had multiple system folders on your hard disk. So one of the easiest ways to start up with a new version, a modified system, was to create a RAM disk, which is the opposite of virtual memory. So you say, I'm going to take a portion of RAM. I've got enough, I hope, (laughs) RAM, um, to take a portion of that and treat it as a virtual disk. And then you could copy files and folders, including the system folder, into the RAM disk. And then you could even set that RAM disk as your startup disk, um, which was a (laughs) delicate situation (laughs) because you... You literally had to select restart in, because if you selected shut down, of course, it would power down and the contents of RAM would be purged and your RAM disk would be gone. So there was this like there was this tiny moment of transition where you said, I'm just restarting, power is on, the RAM is powered up, it's not going to lose its contents, and then it treats that as a disk and starts up. And I know that um there were definitely applications of RAM disks other than starting up with a weird hacked system folder. Um, I think that one of the big ones was for graphics professionals who had kind of tricked out workstations and had RAM to spare. that if you were working in applications like Photoshop, graphics design applications, they would use a portion of the disk for, quote, scratch, where there was basically data you know image data that need that wasn't being worked on actively but needed to be kept around in case for example you, you know were going through an undo queue or were performing certain actions and so it would by default it would just write that to disk and it could get very very slow and it would bog down your workflow but if you had say 16 megabytes of extra ram that you could dedicate as a ram disk then you could say to Photoshop, use my RAM disk as scratch. So there's one particular process within the Photoshop application that's going to write out extra data that it might need to refer to later. And you say, I've got extra RAM. So put that in the fast storage. Um, I mean, this is, again, a problem that we're still working with to this day with things like, I mean, I'm, I'm talking right now, into an iMac with a fusion drive, which is almost the same thing. I mean, yes, I understand that there are differences in terms of access speed for RAM, even non-volatile RAM, which is a thing now versus flash storage. Although in practice, anything that is non-spinning is much, much faster than something that we- that is spinning. And, we're still working with that now, where now we have um, you know, parts of the system and core data that handles that dynamically on the fly for us, core storage. But in the early macOS, you could actually manage that manually through a control panel.
1: Another thing that wasn't necessarily a control panel, but is an archaic memory-related item, is being able to select an application icon and choose Get Info. And tell it how much RAM you want it to use. You could set uh, the minimum. Uh, there would be a like a, a fixed field that's like suggested, and then there would be a minimum. You could go below the suggested; it would probably cause your application to crash if it was too low. And then there was the like I don't know if it was max or it was like use this, where you could go way above it and say like give Photoshop all the RAM except for the RAM I need for my RAM disk uh, in an effort to make your programs run quicker. And that's another thing that we just don't even have to think about anymore.
0: Yeah, really not with like compressed RAM and all of that in OS Ten today. Yeah, I remember doing that where you would try to get it to the lowest number that wouldn't crash the app. So you could have more applications open at once. Another um, interesting control panel that I noticed as I was just going through them in order in, uh, in my emulated uh, System 7.5 was the users and groups panel. Which, again, uh, the the implementations of multi-user support in the classic Mac never really made it to anything comparable to what we're used to in OS X with Unix-based multi-user support. And so this is a weird one. It's a little bit half-baked. You, if you open it up, all of the other control panels, when you would double-click on them, they would open up and they would behave essentially like a mini application. Um, and this one, it's weird because you double-click it and it just opens like a folder. And there are icons for the various users. in, the, And then you double-click on those and it opens up something that looks more like a control panel to change the settings for given users. So it was kind of in a weird interim phase. Oh, one other uh, specific control panel that I wasted a ton of time in that is just unbelievably primitive today was the map control panel, which all the map control panel was is it had a bitmap image of, I guess, a Mercator projection, you know, some basic projection of, of the world map. And by default, It was a black and white bitmap. The the big hack was that you could paste any image into the map application. And in System 7, all you had to do... I don't know why they didn't do this by default in System 7. But what you had to do was you would go and open the scrapbook. And you would page through the scrapbook. And there was a color map image of the world. And you would copy that and paste it into the map application. You have a beautiful full color map of the world. Of course, there was no zooming in on this map.
1: There was there there, there was no Google Street View <laughs> and the the list of like places or it wasn't even like places. There were a couple high population cities that you could search for and that was it.
0: Right, there were probably maybe 60 major cities of the world that you could search for in a field or you could tab through them. Or if you clicked on the map and got them exactly right at the pixel, you could find the place. And of course, the big Easter egg in the map application was the labeled place that was middle of nowhere, uh, which I believe was just the zero comma zero yeah coordinate. So it's off the coast of Africa, on the equator, on the prime meridian. And of course, you, know, you could you could. You could try to click exactly on it. That was the game. We were desperate for entertainment when we were spending our time in the map control panel. But uh, it was interesting. It would show latitude and longitude based on this map. And it would show these various place names. And I
1: think you could add places. Oh, yeah, because I remember adding Shaker Heights.
0: Yeah, I remember adding Cleveland or something. And it was like, okay, well, here's the Great Lakes. And I'm going to click there. That's basically where I live and it would give you a latitude and longitude. or I think um, you know, we talked about having Carmen San Diego and the Atlas that came with it and like I think we looked up in an atlas what the exact latitude and longitude was. Ah, nice for the city and then you could type in the latitude and longitude and then say save this as a certain city. It, again, extremely primitive compared to what we think of as a maps functionality on any device today. You know, even even the worst of maps, um, you know,
1: I'm thinking initial launch Apple Maps uh, had this way beat. And it's funny that it's a control panel because I don't think it controlled anything on your system, even time zone, which would be the only thing I could think of that it would control. It was more just like a, a little fun thing. And I think Apple realized that because whenever they started having an Apple Extras folder at the root of your system, uh, maybe around OS 8, the Maps Control Panel was in there by default, not in the Control Panels. It was like, we know that this is just a thing. Uh, You can use it if you want or don't.
0: Right, because the the two major things that were necessary for Control Panels were they had to have something that you could change that was a user-selectable feature. And for the most part, they also... Tied into some system level functionality because, in the startup process, they would they they were the second half of the startup process was loading the control panels, and so their functionality would be present. I mean, control panels, third party control panels that we know and love and have de- dedicated multiple episodes to Kaleidoscope, for example, and so. It was a control panel because you went in there and you chose which theme you wanted, so that was a user-facing setting, but you needed the Kaleidoscope control panel to load at startup to have the capability to go into the memory space of the system and change your window appearance completely. Um, so we mentioned that that half of the startup process. Of course, the other half of the startup process, the first most important Most pain-inducing part of the Classic Mac startup process was loading extensions, which lived in their own folder. So any installation of Classic Mac OS, if you were really using it and behaving as a power user, you are going to load up tons and tons of extensions, which could cause problems for you. Thinking back to them, extensions were just hacks. They were literally injecting themselves into the memory space of the system and changing the features of it and the way that it behaved, including perhaps inducing crashes, because that's just behavior, right? (laughs) Um, And the interesting thing about extensions is the way that they worked within the system folder. Like we said, there were many things in the system folder where you could go in and you know for control panels, you knew that any control panel you could double click it and you would expect to have a window that would have information about what it does, give you the features that you could change. But with extensions, they were packaged up, and that was kind of it. Uh, they had the puzzle piece icons, and that you know, those were the atomic units of adding functionality. Just the same as if you're doing a jigsaw puzzle. You, know, you can't change uh what the smallest unit of the puzzle is. It's a single piece. <laughs> uh and so if you were manipulating extensions, you know, sometimes you would go into your extensions folder and say, What on earth do I have in here? Because you could you could explicitly install an extension by getting an extension file, recognizing that it was one by its icon and dragging it onto the system folder. There was another piece of functionality that came with the system folder uh, in system, I believe, system 7 and beyond. So if you took an extension or a control panel and just dragged it onto the system folder icon, it would say, hey, that's an extension. Do you want me to file it in the extensions folder? And you would say, yes. Same for control panels. So you wouldn't have to dig all the way in and put it in the right place. But, you know, you could... You could install an extension that way manually, or you would run an installer from some great new piece of software that you got, and it would add 12 extensions to, <laughs> to your extensions folder, and they might not be named anything that was clear to you where they came from. And the funny thing with extensions was that names were extremely important because extensions loaded alphabetically. Mm-hmm. And so, all you would go in there, and you'd be presented with just tons and stu- tons of stuff that you didn't even know what it was, and you weren't going to really find out by double clicking on them because if you double clicked on an extension, you would just get a dialog box that would pop up that says, "This file adds functionality to your Macintosh." To add this file's functionality to your Macintosh place the file in the extensions folder, and then restart the computer. So if you're looking at an extension that's already in the extensions folder, that has not helped you one iota. (laughs) The only way to tell what the functionality was for given extensions was via balloon help. And so this meant that, you know, balloon help was a system seven feature. So before that, I presume that you were just lost. (laughs) Um, But you could go in and turn on balloon help and then mouse over your various extensions and they might if you know if the developer was a good citizen, they might tell you where they came from and what they did.
1: And if not, you just get the a similar generic message about this being an extension that extends your Macintosh's functionality.
0: There are a couple of specific I've I've written it down here, specific inits. So that that was the uh the type code for extensions for short for initialize, because uh you know they were one of the they were the first part of the startup process after after the mac posts basically and uh like i said they had to load in a particular order they well they loaded alphabetically by default and there were certain ones that uh i remember quite a bit uh i think everybody's nemesis was the atm extension adobe type manager and specifically tilda atm right so it would go first right To put it first. So yeah, just like that bullet character put things to the end, tilde put things to the front. Um, And ATM, despite starting with an A, wasn't necessarily close enough to the beginning of the alphabet.
1: Right. Anything that started with Apple would load before it, for example.
0: And uh, this was uh, an extension that enabled certain font features in Adobe products. And it was the most persnickety of all extensions because it had to load first, except when it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because it had to load first 99% of the time, otherwise it would cause a crash. But if you had some certain other extension that it was conflicting with, then maybe it had to load last or in the middle. And you couldn't tell. Um, This was, of course, where apps like Conflict Catcher came in, where they could do this automatically for you. Um, Or in uh, System 7.5 and beyond, there was the Extensions Manager, which was kind of a Sherlocking of Conflict Catcher before Sherlocking was a thing. Um, The Extensions Manager lets you turn extensions on and off without having to move them to a separate disabled folder. Uh, So it was a little bit quicker than that but it didn't have the features of Conflict Catcher that would try to automatically determine what was causing a crash for you by trying different permutations. Uh, one thing that I found, um, the, the emulated copy of Classic Mac OS that I'm running is a system, system 7.5.5, and it has Extensions Manager. Uh, there's an extension for Extensions Manager
1: so you can trigger it during boot, and it, uh, doesn't it have to load first? Does it have a space or something?
0: Yes. So it's space em extension. <laughs> um, and I was looking in uh the SadMax book. <laughs> um, and it would there was an entire separate section on what if your extension manager is the extension that's causing your conflict. Oh my God. <laughs> At which point you're in some sort of existential quandary and should just throw your Mac out the window. <laughs> um, another uh, very well-known extension was the QuickTime extension. So the ability to play movies on the Mac was enabled by a first-party extension, which was QuickTime, and eventually developed into an entire suite of QuickTime extensions that again, because they all loaded alphabetically and not every extension, but many extensions. And there was the option to display the extensions icon during the boot process. So you got this kind of faux progress bar of, uh, as you were starting up your Mac, where you would see the extensions go marching across the bottom of the screen. You knew you were a hardcore user. If you got up to the second row and, the QuickTime extensions and I would say, OS 8, OS 9, there were probably four or five of them. They all started with Q, obviously, so they all loaded at the same time. And um, they marched across the screen in generally slow succession because it was really quite a lot. They were some of the largest first-party extensions that were being loaded. And I remember when my family got our first G3 Power Mac and we had been going along to the best of our ability on our slightly souped-up uh, first-generation Power Mac 6100. And I remember when we got the new Power Mac G3, we set it up, it was like on the floor because we hadn't you know got it set up in its permanent place. And uh, we started it up and I I... And I watched the boot process, and I remember the words that actually came out of my mouth were, "I've never seen the QuickTime extensions load that
1: fast." Yeah, I'm trying to remember all of them. There was There was QuickTime itself. There was the QuickTime power plug, which I assume was with power Macintoshes to accelerate uh, like QuickTime decoding or, or whatever needed to be done. There were uh, There was QuickTime VR. Everyone remember the kind of Google Street View-esque VR photospheres? I have a couple of
0: QuickTime VR files I created myself um, just about 10 years ago now when I was doing study abroad in college, and I have no way to play them now. They're just dead. Even in QuickTime Player 7, which still runs on OS X, I have no way of playing them. So if anyone listening has a way of... Playing QuickTime VR
1: files, I would like those because um, I've got a couple of really good ones. Um, oh, there were there were QuickTime musical instruments. I want to say like the MIDI plugin. Yeah,
0: there were mid- MIDI support files. Yeah,
1: and then there were there was Quick Draw, Quick Draw 3D, Quick Draw something else. Yeah, Q was very heavy. Uh, you mentioned the 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 march of icons across the bottom. One of the things I will always remember is the After Dark control panel. Uh, I don't know how they did this, but instead of showing the literal control panel icon, which had the nice little slider at the bottom in gray, they showed uh, 32 by 32 of the, the after dark general icon, the, the cityscape, the uh, the silhouetted cityscape at night. And during the boot process, there would be a shooting star animate, maybe six frames of animation in that little icon space, which, you know, adds a split second to your boot time so it can play that but I always appreciated it.
0: Oh yeah, and we had um we had Kaboom installed, which is the third-party software suite for adding ridiculous interface sounds to your Mac, and one of the sounds that you could choose was a startup sound, and that what that didn't replace the startup chime obviously cuz that was coming directly out of the ROM. And it didn't wait all the way until the Finder launched, but what it did was it played that sound Right when the Kaboom extension loaded, or it might've been Kaboom was a control panel. So I think it was when the control panel loaded. So K was kind of towards the beginning of control panels. And so you knew that when our computer went, ah, (laughs) (laughs) that it was about two thirds of the way through booting up. That's really
1: funny and useful. There are a couple more folders that I think we're going to kind of breeze through. We already mentioned fonts. Once System 7.1 was released, the fonts were again moved out of the system suitcase and into their own folder. There's also the preferences folder where applications stored their settings in between launchings of the application.
0: Yeah. So preferences like extensions were these kind of monolithic files that if you if you tried to double click on one of them, it would just say, this is a preference file. You need it. <laughs> Um, and I think of today preferences as being kind of eminently editable. Whereas even if you opened up a preference file in resident in classic Mac, you would go in there and there would just be the like data object types, you know, binary or hex or, um, or those kinds of resources that were not human readable for the most part. There were a few very, there were maybe a very few, preference files that you could actually edit yourself directly without manipulating them through the corresponding application. Whereas in OS X, this is one of the few areas where system files actually got a little bit more accessible. Obviously, some things are more hidden in OS X. Like, for example, now by default, just the entire library folder is hidden. So you have to know to get into the library folder to get into preferences. But in early OS X, or if you've shown your library folder today, there's the preferences folder and pretty much everything in there is a plist file and they're just XML and you can either open them. uh, I remember having uh, the plist editor application that came with like early IDEs that Apple released even before Xcode and you could download it just separately Um, I think that that was a PowerPC app and has now gone away. Um, But you can either open them up in just a text editor, and typically the XML in there is pretty... Anything that you would want to change is pretty readable. Or um, I think many people are familiar with the defaults write command in the terminal, which is basically just a tiny little command that does the exact same thing. If If you execute a defaults write command, you're basically saying go into this plist file, look for this XML tag, and change the value to what I've specified. So preferences in OS X are more flexible than ever, and we have those secret preferences and those kinds of things that um, you can affect uh, the behavior of the system with a simple terminal command uh, that you probably couldn't have gotten to without some very clever hackery in the classic days.
1: There are a couple more folders, and again, we'll just kind of keep going through them. Startup items and shutdown items. These are things you want to run automatically at their respective points in using your computer. Startup items would come, I think, after even the Finder had loaded. So it's definitely after the extensions and control panels are loading on the boot screen. You can probably even see your desktop, and then it starts executing, I think, again, alphabetically, everything in the startup items folder. Uh, I know that I had the an alias to the launcher so that my launcher would automatically show up. Uh, I know people who would launch the applications that they were always working in, whether it was a word processor or graphic ed- editor. Um, or if you didn't have Kaboom, you could just put a sound file in there so that at the very end of your boot process, you might hear a, a sound to let you know that everything was ready.
0: We actually did both of those. <laughs> <laughs> we actually at one point had like four or five different sound files in startup. And it was just this like collage of like non sequitur quotes and beeps and boops. And, uh, it was, it was pretty silly. Uh, but yeah, anything that was in there would be basically treated like it was double clicked at the conclusion of the startup. And that meant for system seven sounds, that particular file format, uh, again, another special type of file uh, that usually lived in the system folder, but could be anywhere else. Uh, if you double-clicked one of those, it just played the sound. It didn't open a window
1: or open an app or anything. And the same for shutdown items. Uh, I never put anything in here. I know that there are uses for it, but we don't have to get into them.
0: You could put an Apple script or something in there that would would tidy up various things before you shut down your Mac. Something like that.
1: Yeah, AppleScript. Uh, at the advent of AppleScript, there would be scripts folders, or I should say a scripts folder in the system folder. Some other things that uh, showed up in the system folder as their features were released with the system software, like contextual menu items in OS 8. The control strip items, I think, what, 7.1, 7.0?
0: Uh, yeah, it was system 7 for the PowerBooks, and then extended to all Macs in 7.5.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, launcher items for the launcher, and around OS8 where everyone's getting on the internet you have your internet favorites actually in the system folder and uh internet plugins for wh- whatever browser you're using netscape or ie uh also search sites for I, I know there wasn't any like native search query in the address bar but you could have your search sites bookmarked there um there was also at least for uh, the window that we had <laughs> Whatever combination of system software and printer, there's the print monitor documents in the system folder. Print monitor was the Apple created kind of all purpose print queue application slash service. I believe the actual print monitor app bundle itself was in the extensions folder. And this just triggers like PTSD in me because the only time <laughs> I ever went into print monitor was when something wasn't printing. There was something wrong with the printer. And that happened. Way too often, and it was usually some kind of Apple Talk snafu because we tried to have both computers connect through the phone line to each other without having internet. Like it was, it was a mess. Anything that triggers the print monitor, uh, just I I have an association with problems. Um, and I think it became less and less relevant as printer manufacturers started making kind of rich drivers that included their own queue management software with it. Like I know, uh, I don't have any printers at home, but at work we have an HP printer. And whenever I print, there's an HP application that opens. And I think sits there with an empty queue until you manually quit it. And I'm sure the same is, I'm sure it's the same for Epson and Canon and Brother and other printer manufacturers.
0: Yeah. One of the funny things in the uh, System 1 review that we'll have a link to in the show notes was they mentioned that 17K image writer file in System 1. They're like, Apple's pre-installing printer drivers, and 17K out of 200, that's like all of your disk space. Um, and of course, in OS 10 now, lots of printer drivers are installed by default. Others can be downloaded on demand. Um, but I think in a standard OS 10 installation, you'll have like hundreds of megabytes of printer drivers. Oh, yeah. And of course, you know, Disk space is cheap, so it doesn't matter today. But uh, the same philosophy has carried all the way from system one to the present, that basically there should be something in there that's controlling your printer, giving you access to those features. One thing that you glossed over a little bit quickly, Brian, was the launcher items folder, Mm -hmm. which, again, was another place for really rich Customization when launcher feature was introduced, which was that single-click button launcher that uh, started on the Performas and then was spread throughout the entire operating system. And one of the interesting things there is that launcher items folder. You think, oh, this behaves just like the Apple menu items folder. I can put anything in there that I want. But unlike in the Apple menu items folder, I mentioned that shutdown da that had the bullet in front of its name that was didn't do anything except put it to the end of the list and the bullet still showed up. Apple didn't write some custom code that says, oh yeah, we'll sort that to the end, but it'll just say shut down. It'll be nice and clean and won't have a bullet in front of it. In the launcher items, bullet in a file name was actually a semantic feature. It was. (laughs) That was parsed by the launcher. So if you put, just dropped a folder in there, it would appear as a button in your launcher. But If you created a folder in Launcher Items and put a bullet at the front of its name, it became a new category button that appeared at the top of the launcher. And you could put additional things inside of that and toggle between your launcher views with these special folders that had, again, a very hacky renaming convention to get them working.
1: There's one more file I actually want to quickly mention that was at the root level of the system folder starting in Mac OS 8.6 and it was the Mac OS ROM. We talked a little bit about the ROM earlier in this episode, talking about how the startup chime was kind of encoded into the ROM hardware of a machine. But as Apple moved to what they call new world hardware, the ROM was actually a piece of software that lived in the system folder And this starts to get into the territory of, like, there's nothing you can do with this file. You can't peek around at its resource fork, or you can't open it up like a folder or a suitcase. And if you move it or get rid of it, you're going to cause some trouble to your machine. Oh, another file that could cause some serious
0: trouble was in pretty much, I think, only the System 7.1 era. There were the enabler files. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there there was the ROM, which was physical ROM, there was the system file and the finder, but then the there were particular hardware-specific features that weren't accounted for in the general system file, and you needed an enabler file to basically get the system, the finder, and the ROM all working happily together. And I do remember hacking on the system file and putting in silly error messages, like (laughs) silly insulting error messages. This was one of the things you could do in ResEdit. And I was in elementary school, so it seemed fun at the time. And I put in some sort of silly insulting error message in a version, a, a copy of the system file that I had been working on on my parents' computer. I had taken it on a floppy disk to my grandparents' computer which was a performa, which required an en- an enabler file. I put it on a ram disk and restarted from the ram disk without the enabler file. Ooh, uh huh. And got into basically a loop where I could not boot the machine and could not shut down the machine. <laughs> <laughs> and to add insult to injury, it was telling me like, "Ha ha, something done
1: exploded." <laughs> That's perfect. And uh, a couple more files. Once Apple had announced and begun the transition to OS X and Mac OS 9 was going to live on forever as a mode, the classic mode, the OS 9 system folder started to include a couple of these other Finder slash OS ROM-esque files that were just kind of opaque files. You couldn't open, you couldn't peek around inside that facilitated classic mode. I think there was one that was just called Classic. There were a couple others that were like Classic this and Classic that. A lot like the QuickTime suite of extensions. And uh, you also did not want to mess with those if you were switching between OS X and OS 9 during the transition. So I think that is a pretty complete tour
0: of the system folder, really all the way from System 1 to Mac OS 9. Yeah. So in some respects, I... Miss being able to poke around in the guts of the system folder, and in many other respects, you know, there are some of these aspects that Apple has taken to themselves and said it just works. And when it does, it's beautiful and glorious. And when I have to go into uh, my own library folder and start poking around in there, and all the files have uh, like sixty-four digit long hex names, I just want to scream and go back to the classic system folder. I think, <laughs> I think of course, the, the best story about that is um, one that's been told over and over and over again. The story of transitioning from the classic Mac to OS X, not understanding that what the new special folders did, because that was the thing, was with the system folder, you had one special folder. And then you get to OS X and you have a user folder, and none of the folders look particularly special compared to the rest. And there's one called Library, which is basically your own personal system folder in OS 10. It does many of the same features. And uh, my favorite story is Merlin Mann going in there and, and deleting the entire library folder in an early build of OS 10. And uh, I think he retold this most recently on an episode of the Dalrymple report, which the title of the episode was, I don't need books. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we'll link that up. Uh, It's always a good story. So, you know, go in and whatever operating system you're using, uh, tinker with care.
1: Yeah. That'll be my closing thought for the episode too. As a kid in grade school, there was something about the system folder that I think enabled me into becoming someone who could manipulate computers and not just use them. Uh, there are all kinds of factors like HyperCard, which kind of introduced programming and ResEdit, which introduced tinkering. But it was the fact that the system folder was an accessible, easy to understand, graphically intensive human language written way to modify your system. You didn't have to be the like stereotypical image of someone in IT. You could just be a little kid and the thing, the control panel with an image of your physical monitor was definitely going to be the way that you go in and change your screen resolution or color depth. And uh, I think without this layout of the Mac system folder, I probably would have either not made it to the way that I use computers today or it would have taken a lot longer.
0: Yeah. And it also gave me that sense of respect for how the computer worked, where you could go in and you could go in and delete the whole thing, But you had to understand the power that you had, especially once you opened up ResEdit and were really delving into not just the user-facing features, but the actual operations of how it worked. And you had to respect the fact that if I'm going to do this, I have to either be extremely careful and or I have to have a backup or be working on a separate copy. And those kinds of respect for keeping your data in good order, I think, have have served me well. So like we said, we've mentioned lots of things on this episode. Uh, all the links for this episode you'll be able to find in your podcast app of choice, or you can go to our website. SimpleBeep.com episodes has a full list of all of our back episodes, and you can browse through them there. You can also get in touch with us. There is a quick contact link on the website if you'd like to send us a longer message. If you want to send us a short message, of course, Twitter is always the easiest. We are at Simple underscore Beep.
1: We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O.
0: And I'm at e E-Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and happy tinkering.